your service matters whether you're in the military or you're a journalist or you're a teacher or a fireman first responder it matters when you serve it's about a purpose driven life people wanted to ask me how my my child wants to be a catcher what do i tell them and i said catch every ball and in life isn't that the way it is we all show some form of valor common people doing uncommon things loyalty duty honor respect selfless service integrity personal courage they lay down everything to go to war for us so we can be free to sit here and talk this podcast why why did you do it what impelled you to put aside the instinct for self-preservation and risk your lives it was faith and belief it was loyalty and love clear convictions and beliefs it's important in a democracy for us to know that freedom isn't free The Bob Feller Act of Valor Foundation is exactly the right name for that foundation to inform the American public about the ideals and the virtues and the heroism of people like Bob Feller. Bob Feller he said my one piece of advice is read our constitution and run your lives according to the constitution. We swear an oath to a document that stands for freedom makes this experiment that we call the United States of America. We are not perfect but we hold the moral high ground. We are trying to in the words of our founding document in order to form a more perfect union. There're going to be some tough calls to make the world safer, better, to represent those values. We can continue to make this world a much much better place. Greetings. My name is Galen O'Dell, alongside Nathaniel Cameron, and welcome to the American Valor Podcast. On the American Valor Podcast, supported by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation, our goal is to educate and inspire with acts of valor that embody the traits which National Baseball Hall of Famer and United States Navy Chief Petty Officer Bob Feller lived by. Citizenship, service above self, and commitment to country in a time of great national need. Today we are honored to be joined by retired Rear Admiral Tom Carney. Rear Admiral Carney earned his bachelor's and master's degrees from Villanova University. Before embarking on a distinguished career leading to his service in the role of Vice Commander of Naval Sea Systems Command. We're really fortunate to have the opportunity to talk with him today about leadership and some of the lessons that he learned in his career in the Navy. We really thank you for joining the podcast today. Well, hello, Nathan and Galen. Thank you for inviting me, and I look forward to our discussion. Please tell us about your background and the process from going from an enlisted sailor to a rear admiral. Sure. So when I was in high school, I wanted to go to college, but I wasn't really sure I was ready to go do that. And I started looking into the military and decided that going into the Navy was probably a better choice for a few years after graduating high school before I committed to going off to college and 2 weeks after high school I sort went off to Navy boot camp spent several years in the Navy working in the submarine side of nuclear power and the nuclear side of the Navy and I loved it but while I was there I applied for an ROTC scholarship and I received one and went to Villanova University and graduated from there in 1985 with a commission as an ensign and went right back into the submarine force 
And from there, I spent uh, many years on submarines, alternating between about a three-year sea duty tour on each submarine and then to a couple of years of shore duty and ultimately wound up spending about 22 or so years serving on submarines. And then after that, I went off to be an acquisition professional within the Navy for the procurement of our weapon systems, working primarily at the Naval Sea Systems Command at DC for about 10 years. So I wound up spending almost 34 years in the Navy starting right after high school until uh, just a couple of years ago. I retired in 2016, and I currently have my own company where I help advise a variety of companies on engagement with the defense systems and defense industry, and kind of help communications between industry and government, and help industry understand government ease and help the government understand industry is kind of as an interpreter between them and I really enjoyed that but that's what I spent in the Navy and looking forward to additional questions. So as a Navy veteran who has spent the majority of their career in the submarine force what role do submarines play in the U.S. Navy overall? Well the submarine force is a tremendous asset to the Navy There are five primary missions is to seek and destroy enemy submarines, surface ships, and anything that's floating out there above or under the water. We also project power ashore through missiles, uh, Tomahawk cruise missiles, and deployment of special operations forces. A big role that we do even during peacetime is called our ISR role, our Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance role. And we're very busy in that today. Uh, around the world, making sure that the U.S. is maintained safely or safe, and those submarines conducting ISR are constantly feeding back uh, vital information to our Navy and defense decision makers. We also support battle group ops when we travel with a full battle group of surface ships and aircraft carriers, and then we can also conduct mine warfare. Of note, the submarine is the most requested naval asset by our theater combatant commanders, which is our most senior people in the entire defense organization that report directly to the president and are responsible for various areas around the world. And as I mentioned, the submarines are the most requested naval asset. So it brings a whole lot of great capability to our warfighters. We've had the opportunity to speak with some submariners on this podcast in the past about the unique role and the importance of submarines. We understand you must have some special memories from your career within the submarine service. Please tell us about setting a submarine record and a time you handled an emergency at sea. Sure. Yeah, I I served on many ships and submarines from being a junior officer right after I graduated college, heading off to a submarine out of Hawaii and worked as a chief engineer on another submarine, served as an executive officer on a different submarine. And then ultimately, I was chosen to be the pre-commissioning unit CO, commanding officer, for the first of the Virginia-class submarines, which is the latest class of submarines that we're building today, which is probably the most modern submarine in the world. And being the first to have command of that pre-commissioning unit 
was uh, exceptional. A, a friend of mine, Dave Kern, actually got to take the ship out to sea for the first time. And so he had a lot of fun with that ship. But I then, after my time on the Virginia, transitioned over to probably my best tour in the entire Navy. And I was in command of the USS Alexandria, SSN 757. That submarine was exceptional, and we got to do some exceptional things. One of the really cool things about it was the Navy had decided to conduct an around the, or a deployment from the East Coast straight to the Western Pacific. We don't typically do that. We typically had Eastern fleet submarines operating in the Mediterranean and in the Atlantic operations in those areas. And it was the first time we decided to transfer a ship directly to the Pacific Fleet from Groton, Connecticut. And the first time we decided to do that via the North Pole. Going via the North Pole cut off about 10 days of transit time of heading south from Groton down through the Caribbean, through the Panama Canal, and then across the Pacific over to Japan and heading up north around Iceland to the North Pole through the Bering Strait on into the Pacific Ocean and to Japan and, and other areas in the Western Pacific, it was a lot faster. And the ability of a submarine to transit under the ice has been well proven over the years. But one of the things I got to do is kind of a speed run under the ice because my primary mission was to just get over to the Western Pacific. In the past, we've operated under the ice, but most of the time our submarines up there would do uh, scientific experiments, some training, tactical experiments, and things like that. So the fact that I was the first one to go through there at that high rate of speed afforded me the privilege of having the Alexandria having the fastest crossing of the Arctic in a naval vessel, which was really fun. But one of the things, our first night under the ice, we were about 300 miles from the North Pole, oh, down around 500 feet or so under the ice, and we had a casualty on the submarine, which really gets your attention when you have problems and you're underneath the Arctic ice pack. Normally, a submarine can break through about five feet of ice, and sometimes in the Arctic, there's ice packs that move around based on the wind, and sometimes it's clear water above you, and then sometimes it's 100 feet of ice. So you have to be really careful while you're transiting. But if you're deeper than 300 feet or so, there, there's no issues with any impacting of ice keels or anything along those lines. So you can pretty much fly at flank speed. But uh, that evening or that morning, early morning, around four in the morning, we had an unisolable freon rupture from one of our refrigeration plants that keeps our food and everything cool in the submarine. And uh, freon, had a, we had a rupture in a pipe there. And of course, freon in the atmosphere is toxic and not good. So everybody in the submarine's got to don breathing protection. And as the commanding officer being woken up with an alarm and a casualty call of a freon rupture in machinery room is not a good way to wake up. But we've trained for those types of things and it's pretty high stress level, but we know how to deal with those things. And I came out of my stateroom and got a brief on what the casualty was, and we're all in our breathing protection, which makes communications very challenging. 
but the plan there was typically in a submarine when you have a toxic gas environment, you work your way up to the surface and then you kind of open a, the hatch or you put up a snorkel valve, as we call it, to exchange the bad air in the submarine with the good air outside the submarine. But when you're under an ice pack, that's really hard to do. So uh, my first question was, how thick is the ice overhead? And as we're transiting through the Arctic, we always keep track of how thick that ice is. And the report from the navigation team was, well, it's about 30 feet. And I said, well, we're not coming up here. So uh, we had to continue on our way in a toxic environment. Though so we were safe because we had breathing protection on, like Scott Air Packs, if you will, that you see firemen using. But these are plugged into the submarine off of a high-pressure air system that's reduced to be able to be breathable. But it wouldn't last forever, and you have to do something. And we weren't finding any open spots to come up to ventilate the submarine, as we would call it. So we had to do something else and decided to reinitiate the ventilation in the forward compartment of the submarine and run it through a charcoal bed filter that we have, which is a very large filter about the size of a table or so that would be an ability to remove the Freon from the atmosphere. And we did that and lo and behold, the numbers came down on the Freon. And at the same time, I had a, a great mechanic working on the piping and put a patch on it and he operated the system in the best way possible to reduce the amount of Freon coming into the submarine and we cleaned it up and kind of went on our merry way. But the stress level to get to that point was pretty high but as I mentioned we we're pretty well trained and we trained through those things but it's never the same as the training when it's the real thing. But my crew did an awesome job and, and I was very proud of them. And then we continued on our way and made it out through the Bering Strait and on into the Pacific without any further issue. Wow, that is amazing. It gets pretty exciting sometimes when you're, you know, 500 feet underwater and you're inside a, a steel tube that's the 360 feet long <laughs> with a one-inch thick stainless or a high-strength steel surrounding you. And then you know you've got a lid of ice over top of you. It makes for a, a different dynamic. Yeah, it sure does. What stands out in my mind is how, even though the Alexandria had a major rupture, which produced a toxic environment on the sub, you and your crew approached the problem as if it was no big deal and handled it beautifully. And on top of all that, you guys were still able to get to your destination in record time. So I give you and the Alexandria's crew big props for accomplishing that feat under those circumstances. Yeah, so the, the crew is very close-knit, and we are very well-trained. We spend a lot of time on training to make sure that when you have a real casualty, uh, you know how to handle it because there's no room for error when you're down deep under the water. And if you have water coming in, that's a problem. If you have a fire inside a steel pipe eight, 500 feet underwater, that's a, that's a big deal. And so we know what to do there. And, you know, it's really amazing that the submariners themselves, they, they sacrifice a lot. The submarines, even today, aren't designed to have enough bunks for everybody. And since we always have people up and about on watch, we can have a reduced number of beds so that when somebody comes on watch, they get out of that bed and then that frees up the bunk 
for the person who was on watch to be able to go back. But these young men and women that are in the submarine force sacrifice a lot of personal space. They sacrifice a lot of time away from their family and they all choose to do it to serve their country. And it's been, it was a real pleasure being able to work with such an extraordinary crew throughout my Navy career. Looking back on your time as a submariner, what would you say are the pros and cons of living and working on a submarine while on deployment? One of the, the biggest pros for us in the submarine force is recognizing that our missions that we're conducting are oftentimes highly classified uh, beyond the normal classification levels. And the fact that they're at that level is because of the importance of the information that the submarine crew is gaining for our national defense decision makers all the way up to the president. The missions that we accomplish are exceptional and very, very challenging, but vital to the national defense. So that's the real pro, knowing that hey, I'm, I'm gone from my family for six months at a time, but what we're doing is vitally important for the country. Everybody recognizes that the value of it is there. The con is it's a very tight space on a submarine. If you need a lot of personal space, well, you, you need to find it within because you're not gonna find it in the submarine itself. The technical complexity of a submarine is exceptional and I've often referred to working and living inside a submarine as kind of like living inside a Swiss watch. The piping and the wiring and all those types of things aren't hidden behind nice looking walls and bulkheads as we call them in the Navy, like you would see on a cruise ship or whatever. It's, it's a pretty raw type of location, primarily because if you have a leak from something, you want to know that it's happening. If you have a short in a cable or a little bit of smoke coming out of something, you want to be able to operate the submarine and know exactly what's going on. So it's a very technical pipe, essentially, that, that you're living inside. And it's being pushed by a nuclear reactor through the water at very high rates of speed at great depths. So the technical marvel that our submarines actually are is really a unique place to live and operate and work. But the ability to get a mental break really isn't there. And that's one of the cons that living in and working in there. So you have to have the right type of mental attitude. And the submarine force screens people multiple times and ways to make sure that the right people are serving in our submarines today. Wow, that insight you made about looking for something within. I think there was this sense of trying to find an inner strength and inner ability or capability to persevere, even in a challenging time, for example. What is your definition or philosophy of leadership? So I look at that leadership in, in a couple, two ways, really. It's a fairly simple philosophy, and it's there's an external factor and there's an internal factor that leaders need to understand. The external factors are simply the leader sets the culture or the tone of the organization. In other words, how does that organization interact amongst themselves with people in the organization, and how does that organization interact with people outside the organization? So setting the culture or tone is a 
big responsibility of the leader. And the other external aspect of leadership is that the leader must remove obstacles in the way of his or her people doing their job, whether it's training, they need the right tools, they need some encouragement, whatever the obstacle is in the way of them doing their job, your job as a leader is to remove that obstacle. So that's the external aspect, culture and removing obstacles. The internal leadership is just as important. And the first thing there is the leader needs to check their ego. It's really not about you. You've been chosen to be the leader for some good reason, but there are other people who could still lead that organization. And it's really not about you, it's about the organization. So a leader must be able to check their ego at the door and know they're there to serve their people that they're challenged and charged with leading. And then the other side of, of the internal leadership is to be technically competent. A leader doesn't have to know all the answers, but the leader has to know when they don't know the answer and where they can find the answer to a challenge. And the case in point of under the Arctic ice with the Freon rupture, I didn't know all the answers, but I did know a vital part of it of how to redirect the ventilation system and that the charcoal bed we used has a natural affinity toward absorbing Freon. And that technical competence was something I needed to have. So a leader needs to know they have to really understand whether they're in finance, whether they're in business, whether they're in a research lab or whatever, the leader needs to have a certain level of technical competence and they need to continue to work that so that they can appropriately lead their team. So that's how I look at leadership, external and internal, and in those four areas I described. How you view leadership is one of the things I really like about military culture where from my point of view, having a team first mentality instead of a me first mentality is encouraged and recommended. What's pretty cool about these ideals is that they don't only have to apply to the military. You can also apply them to the private sector because by having a team first mentality, the work environment can be productive, positive, and a sense of trust among colleagues is created. Yep, they are. Yep, indeed. You know, one of the other things on, on leadership that a saying I like to keep in mind is about judging people. And there's a saying I came across some years ago that I routinely keep in mind, and it said that people judge others by their actions, and they judge themselves by their intentions. And when you think about that, it's really eye-opening because it's very true. And what we need to do to use that saying in the right way is to really give some flexibility to the people you may be judging. And if you're a leader or you're the boss, of course, you're gonna be judging performance of people all the time. And what you need to do as a good leader is to make sure you're, you're really understanding why somebody did something. And don't just take their action and say, well, they, they messed that up or they did that wrong or, or they're not worthy of a, a higher rating or whatever it is, you need to really kind of check yourself on, uh, am I judging just their actions or do I really understand what their intentions were? Because as I said, people judge others on their actions and they judge themselves on intentions. A question we often ask interviewees is about the word and idea known as valor. 
when valor comes to mind, what does that word mean to you? It really means what sacrifices people have given to serve their country. And whether it's a, an act of valor on the battlefield where someone jumped on a hand grenade to save their shipmates or their fellow Marines or Army folks, obviously a significant level of valor there. But it's a decision to serve your country and your fellow citizen at the expense of something you have to give up. In other words, your freedom to come and go as you please because you're stuck on a ship or you're in boot camp or you're on a, in an aircraft or something uh, you're giving up or you have to leave your family. You know, your parents may not be in the best of health or your wife may be pregnant and having a child or your husband may be needing to move to a different place as part of a job. And you have to sacrifice and give something up. So there's multiple levels of valor that people tend to exhibit in the military in serving their country. As I mentioned, some, some more dynamic, if you will, than others, but they're all choosing to serve. And, and that, to me, is the definition of valor. Yeah, that's quite a coincidence because Bob Feller had the same mentality as you do. Back in 1941, Feller had the potential of becoming a star pitcher for the Cleveland Indians. However, after Pearl Harbor, Feller enlisted in the Navy because he put his country ahead of his personal interests. So Admiral Carney, that's pretty cool how you and Bob Feller share this mentality. Yeah, and as a famous ball player and an extraordinary ball player, it was great to see him come back from the war and, and after making chief petty officer and then getting back into the baseball game and just doing great. I had an opportunity to give a couple speeches with the Bob Feller Active Valor organization and uh, learned a lot about it. And you know, one of the things I learned was there was a lot of other professional baseball players that went off to war also and were either killed in combat or wounded and were never able to play again, sadly. And their sacrifice was significant. I know Bob Feller had the highest regard for those folks that were not able to play again when they came back from the war. Rear Admiral Carney, we really thank you for taking the time today to share lessons from your career. You've shared a lot of helpful information for listeners to reflect on. I'd like to ask you one last question if you have the time. Sure. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Who gave it to you and why was it the best advice? Hmm. That's a good question. I would say as a human being, we tend to sometimes go with the crowd. And there was a time when I was a young sailor working at one of the reactor plants that the Navy had. And there was a chief petty officer there that nobody really liked. He, he just was kind of a cantankerous type of person and he wasn't very pleasant, but uh, he never did anything to me. But the other students and sailors that I was with, you know, kind of complained about him and said, ah, he's, he's a, you know, use a couple words there. And, you know, I never joined in on that. And it was driven home that that was the right decision because I later heard that he had thought, hey, you know, Tom Carney is a pretty good kid. And he thought I was a good sailor and a good electrician. And I would have really felt bad 
if I had joined in with the crowd and said, yeah, Chief you know, X, Y, whatever his name was there, yeah, he's a real jerk like everybody joined in on, when I really had no reason or, or you know, professionally you shouldn't do that anyway, and I just felt good not doing that because you just never know to not go with the crowd and to actually make an independent assessment of relationships between you and another person. And I guess that's, maybe it's not advice from somebody else, but it was advice regarding somebody else that I thought I would pass on here. Thank you again for your time today, Rear Admiral Carney. You're very welcome. I enjoyed the discussion and good luck to you guys. Thank you, Admiral Carney. We really appreciate it. And best of luck to you as well. This conversation with retired U.S. Navy Rear Admiral Thomas Carney concludes this episode of the American Valor Podcast. This episode was brought to you by the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation. Please leave your comments in the comment section below and connect with the Bob Feller Active Valor Award Foundation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Active Valor Award. You can engage with the foundation at ActiveValorAward.org. There, you can learn more about Bob Feller. Jerry Coleman, recent nominees of the awards, view pictures, and sign up for updates, including the American Valor podcast, and more. For Nathaniel Cameron, I'm Galen O'Dell. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.